0: This podcast is dedicated to Anne Marie Breen, who left us too soon. She was a very knowledgeable individual in the pre construction industry and touched so many lives with her kind heart. She will be greatly missed. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am your host for today, Ben Myers. Before I introduce our guests, I want to let you know about our tremendous sponsor, The Toronto Under Construction Podcast is sponsored by BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent. They are a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. So our guest today has over four decades of industry experience in the high-rise development industry. She has been involved in the development of approximately 100 condominium buildings in the GTA. More to come on that. Currently, Linda is an independent consultant at her namesake firm, Linda Mitchell Marketing Incorporated. Prior to this, she was vice president of sales and marketing at Baker Real Estate and vice president of sales and marketing at the Monarch Corporation, among other things. Welcome to the show, Linda mitchell Young.
1: Well, thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah. You are a wealth of information on the high-rise condo industry, and always fun to talk to. So let's let's jump right in. Let's jump right in. I wanted to jump in at nineteen ninety-five. So um, I know you've had a some pretty amazing life experiences before that uh you know living in singapore and uh and and starting right out of high school but let's you know let's let's jump in in 1995 because i think that's really when the industry started to take off after the you know the kind of recessionary period so Monarch President John Latimer asked you to research the condominium business for its potential. Monarch had primarily been a single family home builder and you launched the first condominium in Scarborough in 1996 with suites beginning at a suite price of $165 per square foot. So what did the research reveal about the condo market that gave Monarch the confidence to to launch a high rise development coming out of the recession?
1: Well, it was very interested in, to get started in that. I also had just worked in single family housing and sales and marketing um, in my career up to that point. So I didn't even really know how to spell the word condominium. I didn't know much about it. Um, I certainly was like a dog with a bone. I went and visited a lot of sales offices and really started to understand that the was a different animal, the way it was sold. It was a different sort of buyer, um, different positioning. But the Scarborough Market, where Monarch had built many single-family homes, was where this site was. And there, there was um, not much condominium uh, buildings built, not many in that area. So it was an alternative form of living. And with the area being um, very much predominantly Asian, um, with a lot of immigrants settling in the Scarborough area, they came from Hong Kong or other parts of Asia, and, and they were looking for condo living similar to what they had come from. So I think it, it just um, satisfied a market niche that that the area hadn't seen.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. So, we had uh, Jeannie Shim on as a as a co host for the episode with uh, uh, Jacob Iftah, and uh, she had mentioned that Scarborough Market at the time had got a boost from you know, like you said, new Canadians who were actually fleeing Hong Kong and the turmoil surrounding you know the end of the colonial rule and the transfer of you know sovereignty to China. Do you recall, you know, who the buyers were other than, uh, you know, other than locals Um, and and how difficult was it to sell? You know, we talk a lot about projects getting to 60, 70 percent sold in three months these days. Was it it a slog to get people to sign on to a pre-construction building?
1: Well, we were aware. I mean, obviously, the news was covering the uh, handover of Hong Kong from the United Kingdom to the People's Republic of China. And that was in 1997. So. We started preparing for that. We knew that there were a lot of uh, people coming from Hong Kong and especially to the Scarborough area. So we certainly started to look at the art of feng shui. Um, feng means wind and shui means water. And started to really research that ancient tradition and try to utilize some of the um, the principles of feng shui in the suite design and Mm -hmm. you know i it did help i didn't know it would be helpful for me to live in singapore for three years but (laughs) really starting to realize what some of the um the traditions were and and really having to design the suites without the stove in the middle of the unit otherwise it would mean fire in the heart or without the front door and the back door lined up or the good wealth money would go in the front door and out the back door. And (laughs) so, you know, it was, it was very prominent at the time. And, you know, we had to get rid of fours and 14s and 24 because four was a meaning of death and double death. So, you know, we were designing buildings that would have been 20 stories, but they ended up being 23 stories because we got rid of three of the floors, basically from a numbering perspective. Um, When we looked at how much it really meant, and over the years, I think it became more. Instead of first generation, second generation, third generation, so the the principles didn't uh, weren't as prominent back then for the, the the next generation. But and we also found sometimes we'd be left over with some sweets that didn't actually comply to feng shui and. Sometimes when we lowered the price, the feng shui issue went out the window.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it's funny. funny how that happens. Yeah,
1: but, but we did take it seriously. And, and there's there was a lot of that being done in both the condo business and the single family home business where, huh. you know, a house at the end of a, a road and the tea, um, you know, the devil gets in the door. And so there's just some interesting, obviously different beliefs than we have in the Western world, but definitely respecting some of the... Um, the traditions, yeah,
0: and and uh, and were were you were you ever in the sales office selling these projects? Or are you always in the in the head office, kind of getting uh, the yeah. getting the word from the sales team?
1: I wasn't in the sales office. I mean, I would certainly visit the sales office and and speak to you know a lot of the buyers and whatnot and yeah. just watch the activity, um, but no, I did not personally sell. I, I went. Uh, I was in the role at that point of. Looking after the sales and marketing.
0: Nice, nice. That's uh, and did you have a sticker board where you put the little stickers up? You know that that would have been back
1: in the day. I mean, we didn't actually ring the bell. That some sometimes we heard that happening of whenever there was a sale. Uh, but no, we we did have stickers on the board,
0: and, you know. I miss the stickers. Yeah, I know. nice about I mean, not seeing the stickers I mean, on the board, and at
1: least in the hot market, it's great because there's a lot of stickers. But when the market's not too great, <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden there'd be a lot of fake stickers uh, up there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember the fake fake sticker days. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so yeah, it's interesting to kind of segue, you know, moving a little bit forward, but we we'll, we'll, we will go back. I just thought it was a good you know, time to talk about this. Obviously, you you, you mentioned, you know, these these um, Hong Kong buyers buying in our market, but there's been a lot of talk and, you know, eye roll talk about, you know, foreign buyers buying into the pre-construction condo market. Um, from all your years uh, of, of industry experience, what is your perspective on foreign buyers? Was it ever, you know, getting to a point where you thought it might be a problem?
1: Uh, it was never... A concern of mine that it was going to be a problem. I think that um, you know we always, even before the foreign buyer tax, there was a different deposit structure for people that were buying and did not have a Canadian address. Where typically buyers had to put down twenty percent deposit over a certain time, uh, the foreign investors had to put down thirty-five percent. So it wasn't that hard to track the people that had 35% down. So when we did an analysis and you did some and studies, we found it was generally under 5%. And, um, you know, I I find it an interesting topic because when you look around our city and you look at how multicultural we are and we know how many people have come from different countries, yeah, they've moved here and they've bought here and they have a Canadian dress and now they're buying something else. So just because they have were initially from another country. I think most of them um, have been here, and and then they once they get settled, they buy they buy something else yeah. as an investment or. Yeah,
0: it, it was funny how the controversy was you know here and in Vancouver about foreign buyers driving up the market, and 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 then when the the actual data came out from several just different sources, CMHC and Statistics Canada, that showed. At the very highest, like some of these buildings had 10% foreign ownership, but almost all of them were, you know, three, four and 5%. Then it became, oh, yeah, but it's foreign capital coming into the marketplace. And I'm like, well, we want capital to come in to to fund the the the. The revenue that's needed, and the equity that's needed to get these projects built and provide the housing supply. So why wouldn't you want money coming in from another country to, you know, uh, to to create jobs and to create homes for people? But and I you know. think
1: that's true. And I think there a lot of them maybe that where the money comes came from, they still are in their own country and uh, potentially have children living here or other relatives, and they they will offer them money to assist in in buying a condominium yeah. unit. So. I think that was the case for
0: sure. And I know, I I mean, for me, if you've got 400 condos owned by individual Chinese company or a U.S. hedge fund owning a 400-unit rental building, what's really the difference? You know, and
1: and there was always a stigma um, with renters and and. In the, in the condo buildings, everything is maintained the same, whether you're a renter or, or an end user, yeah. or a homeowner. I mean, it's property management, it's cleaners, it's grass cutting, it's snow removal. So you don't know. And I mean, why is there a stigma that it's a renter and there's no pride of ownership maybe in a house and they're not cutting the grass? I don't know. I don't think I know a lot of renters and they're certainly not, you know, don't have pride to keep their their property where they're living uh, still looking well maintained no. versus a, a an actual end user but i don't think it's it's a problem at all well, like i live in a condo i don't know who's a renter and who's a who's a buyer <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. it doesn't
0: doesn't buzzer doesn't go off when they come in the lobby baby no, yeah, renter yeah. stay yeah. away stay away yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: no for sure
0: <laughs> yeah is everyone wants to create this, this, this cast system, right? I'm yep. an owner. I'm more, I'm more important than you. You're just a renter. You don't care about the neighborhood, yeah. right? It's, 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 it's silliness. So anyway, so let's, let's, let's jump into, um, now we're going to move up to the early 2000s. This is kind of when I entered the picture in the, in the Toronto uh, condo industry. So there was, you know, 2,300 condo apartment starts in the in the Toronto census metropolitan area in 1996. So, um, but 2001 there was 12,700. So, right. it's a massive increase in a matter of just five years you know from your perspective what was the you know why was there such a quick uptick in activity in those 5 years like it was it was it investors was it end users was it affordability was you know low interest rates what do you think it uh, well, caused that jump
1: it was interesting when condominiums first came out it was really one buyer group and that was an empty nester and yeah. that was your sort of um you know, the children had moved out. They, they wanted a low maintenance living. They wanted a turnkey. you know, maybe they were going to Florida that, you know, they were an aging population. They didn't want the maintenance, no, not, you know, cutting grass, no removal. And so that all of a sudden that was the market for a while. And all of a sudden, you know, you start building buildings, downtown Toronto, and there's, there's an attraction to the lifestyle and to all the, of course, restaurants and, and all the nightclubs and, and, all the activity in the downtown urban environment that young professionals were starting to be attracted to, or, or young professionals working downtown that didn't want to commute or first time buyers. Cause a condo was cheaper than buying a house, downsizers, um, everything in between, all of a sudden it was pretty much every buyer, uh, market that started to be attracted to condominium living. It's, it's really a, a form and a lifestyle that, that a lot of people are now attracted to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean I was you know, when I joined the industry I, I started out working in the low rise. So I was I thought that's what I wanted. I thought I wanted to live in a, a tract house and a community of fifty houses that all look yeah. the same and you gotta jump in your car and drive fifteen minutes just to go to a convenience store and you know
1: Yeah. And go, I was the go same.
0: Chelsea's like and uh, yeah, <laughs> Jack Astor's. for dinner that's yeah. the big the big night, big out, night but, out. But uh uh, once I started living in the city, I realized ah oh, it's so much more dynamic, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. and I would never want to leave. Even uh, even though when I have three kids, you there's the desire sometimes to have a giant place to live so they can put all their junk everywhere. But
1: no, I I think the same. I was always grew up in a single family home in Scarborough, and you know always lived in a house, and yeah. that was just what you did. When I bought the condo, which was a Monarch condo, so while I was while I was working there. I was holding on to my house and going to try it out because I was like, I don't know. You know, the big thing for me was what if you forget something and and you're down in your car and you got to go back up the elevator. And a friend of mine said, well, you you just start not forgetting things, you know, like, so no, I, I certainly haven't looked back and that's been 15 years that I've lived in a condo and would never ever move into a single family house again.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. So let's, let's, flat let's fast forward again so the, the year is 2007 so we had 22,000 new condo sales so just to me you know we went from 2300 in 1996 to to, to, to 1300 in in, in 20 uh, 2001 and then 2007 22,000 so a, a, you know massive run-up average pricing 425 dollars a square yeah. foot you know um, we had started to estimate and, and that's people that were tracking the industry, the 50 to 60 percent of all sales were were investors. How had you at Monarch started to, you know, um, think about, okay, we're gonna sell half this building to end users and maybe half these buildings to half the building to to investors. Were you really thinking about the unit mix and uh, suite designs to cater to those, you know, yeah. buyers?
1: I think at the time, and again, that's when it was 425 a foot, which is very different to how we think about it today, <laughs> uh, You would, we would definitely uh, put more one-bedroom, smaller units in the mix. The investors were more um, apt at buying some of the more price-sensitive smaller units and, and renting those out. They would get a, a good return on their investment. Um, so we started to probably shift the, the unit mix that we were probably 60-40 60% one-on-one plus 10, and then we'd go to 65, and then sort of 70, 30. Um, as far as the finishes, the you know, it, it didn't matter. The investor was going to rent it out to a, the same type of person that was going to be buying. So yeah. everything that was attractive to somebody buying it would be attractive to the person that was going to rent it off the investor. So yeah. as far as um, the design strategy and, you know, again... That's in that time. I'll discuss later when we get (laughs) to current present time, what what we do differently for investors. But at the time, it was just probably adding a few more smaller units than we normally would have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay, let's go up. Actually, we're only going to jump up ahead one year. And so we're at the, the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009. So amazingly, our market was pretty resilient. We only really had you know, six to seven months of kind of negative activity, but I think it really did have a uh, a longstanding shift on our our market and how it was was financed. So, um, you know, one of the outcomes I thought from from the financial crisis was lenders started requiring developers to sell eighty percent of the revenue in the building, as opposed to you know before it was just sixty to seventy percent of the units, and there used to be these you know massive penthouses 2000 2500 square feet they're taking up a huge chunk of the revenue of the project and and those would may sit for three four five months even after registration before they they sold so lenders started to get a little leery about lending with projects with so much of the revenue tied up in the last you know 15 20 percent of the unit so so i saw a lot of developers just start to get rid of those get rid of three bedroom units get rid of penthouses and just have the same stack you know from floor seven to 35 what, what do you remember about that time uh, was that a, you know were you nervous about the long-term pros, prospects of the industry the the you know by you know, changing buyer sentiment i don't know if you're you you can go all the way back 15 years this thing where you were thinking about oh back yeah then. i
1: mean <laughs> it, consumer confidence was at an all-time low and it's interesting in today's environment because a lot of people that are in the industries today weren't even around 15 years ago to see when this happened and yeah. and it's difficult i mean you've got inventory you need to still sell to get your 80% of um revenue or or whatever you need to get um having smaller units you had to sell a lot a lot more small units and if you were sell- selling any of these big penthouses, they could sell a few of those and you'd get your numbers up pretty quickly but those weren't the first ones to sell so i know that um at the time i was working on a few projects that that great golf had actually and we had to come up with some pretty uh, aggressive incentives. Um, we had to keep things moving and, you know, doing some, whether it's the broker higher, uh, percentage of commission or even some, some buy downs on, on, on the mortgages, uh, free maintenance, free for one year, all those incentives started to come out yeah. because they needed to sell that inventory. They couldn't carry it. Uh, nobody knew how long it was going to take. So it was lucky that the market was resilient enough to bounce back. And it was just a bit of a blip. But uh, at the time, I didn't think it would last forever because, you know, we just are, we have a, a city that needs housing and has a, you know, low unemployment and high immigration and, you know, huge population growth and all those things. So it was going to eventually turn around. But at the time, yeah, it's, it's a, You kind of get stopped in your tracks and and start wondering, you know, how do we do this now?
0: Yeah, I know. it's. Uh, I had taken over running a research company at the time, and I still remember the number Q1 of 2009. There was 939 new condo sales, right? And then w- in a market that was had started to average four or 5,000 a quarter, right? And I was just like, oh my God, it's going to be the absolute worst time because yeah. people, start, people start to lie to you and not stop yeah. telling you the truth on what's selling and what isn't. And uh, luckily, things turned around quite quickly, and we went into and we'll discuss you know one of the the best periods for uh you know for activity in our in our market so but before we get to that 2010 you 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 moved on to to baker real estate you left the development side and moved on to the to the sales side what was the kind of the the impetus or i'm probably pronouncing the word wrong for for you to you know leave somewhere that you've been for 20 years
1: well, it wasn't necessarily my choice. Um, <laughs> Monarch was owned by the London-based Taylor Woodrow uh, LLC, and they had then put Monarch up for sale. And so the president of the company did come to me and say, you know, Linda, this is going to be sold. We have no idea the what's going to happen to your exact role, your job. Like there was just too many unknowns. Yeah. Do you want a package? And, I mean, I was a lifer at Monarch. That was yeah. just going to be it for me. Yeah. So it was – it did come as a shock, but at the end of the day, he did me a big favor because I think um, without knowing with the Madame who has, had bought Monarch at the time, mm-hmm. uh, they obviously had a lot of people in the same role I was doing. And, yeah. you know, they were making a lot of uh, – they were shuffling around a lot of people and trying to um, – Incorporate high rise, the condominium business, into their low rise business. So it turned out uh, for the best, for sure.
0: Interesting. Yeah. yeah, we we discussed a little bit of of, of that sale. I, I I did work on a little bit of that because there was a, a San Francisco based hedge fund that was like looking at buying yeah. it, and I was like working on trying to value some of these monarch assets for yeah. this this hedge fund. And because we um, Alma Dev, which became which is a new company, newly named company, yes. um, had been sold, and there's just so few of those sales happening, yeah. right? And yeah. it's, it's 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 interesting. You know, it's an interesting part of our. our Market that so many development companies ultimately get passed on to the younger generation, yeah, or they just stop existing. That's right. right? Which is always kind of interesting to see a, a development company that's churn, turning out one or two buildings every three to four years, and then and that's it. I uh, know. The owner and says, especially, like I'm, it, I'm done, and 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 that's it. And Monarch the owner,
1: was like 99 years old, and I thought one more year they'd be a hundred years old. <laughs> Had a great reputation, built some really great product and uh i was like wow just to get rid of the name like that but yeah, anyway that yeah. was a big no it, big is, it is sad
0: that uh, that the monarch name disappeared because it had such a long tradition of people buying several monarch yeah. homes right oh, and yeah. uh repeat and, buyers and,
1: referral business that was a lot of a lot of the marketing at the time a lot of
0: value in yeah, that brand for sure. right and for it to uh to, to disappear but you know so it's the past, it's the past. <laughs> <laughs> so you know i'm a data driven guy and i used to love kind of your stories that where you would talk about um you know you almost had an algorithmic thinking back then about how, you know, if one stack of, of units wasn't selling, you might raise the price on a floor plan that kind of looked the same, kind of above market to drive people to, to, to that suite. I'm like, oh, that's so smart. Like, that's a really interesting way of doing things as opposed to, you know incentives or you know cash back at closing and all these these things was was it someone that taught you this or was this you know was this idea of selling was this something you came up with how ultimately do did you come up with some of these different strategies to to move units
1: well it is something that you end up having to um, monitor the sales because you could release a building for sale and there would be one or two stacks that were everybody wanted especially if it was on the waterfront the one with the best view or if it was the one that had the 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 price point like the the most cost effective affordable unit or there there was just always two or three um that were the really popular suites so if you were to just sell them and i i I was watching things in the industry and looking at some other sales data and, and and whatnot. And I thought, if you cream a building and you sell all the gold and it takes a good two, maybe some three years to, to get to the finish line and sell a building and you all of a sudden need more revenue, which in most cases you do, no matter how much <laughs> contingency you have in your performa, there's things that come out of left field. You don't have the, the premium product to sell anymore to, have, to be able to raise revenue on. Yeah. Now you're left with the challenging product and, and you can't sell it as it is, let alone get more revenue out of it. So I think I just sort of figured that out on my own that you have to sell these buildings evenly. You have to make sure and watch it all the time that if something is just running away and, um, and other stuff is stalling, you know if it becomes that and you see two or three stacks that are left over people smell them like they're like what's wrong with (laughs) these units there's gotta be something (laughs) wrong yeah so really trying to figure out how do you sell them evenly well you sell them evenly by that unit that everybody wants we're just going to make it a little more expensive so everyone starts looking at the other unit it's not a bad unit and now you can get it for a little bit of a better price than than the one they really wanted so it's it was really a matter of watching it constantly and and releasing units for sale not releasing the whole building you had a market hold some units because again if you got rid of too much at, at what time one time and you you weren't able to control where revenue needed to be or where um, absorptions for certain challenging suites were you'd be in, you'd be in big trouble yeah. uh, near the end of the sales process. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. I mean, we've talked on this podcast so many times about, you know, the center court model versus yeah. the Brad Lamb model I and mean, center court sell it at, try to sell the building out in the first three months. You know, they they think of the okay. We we have our partners are the investors, right? So if they end up making a little bit more money at the end, great. They're going to come back to us in the end. We feel like we can control our costs. We can get the buildings built uh, quickly, and and we're happy with that strategy. Versus you know, uh, Brad who might you know go out and sell sixty percent of the units and then really crank the pricing up um, uh, at, at that point, and then slowly sell. 10, fifteen percent over the two three year yeah. four-year construction period and and then he'd, he'd happily have 10 to 15 percent of the units at completion yeah. because he's got the you know the exposed uh, concrete, concrete ceilings yeah. Yeah. and he's got a, obviously got a, a tremendous design eye and and makes them look really nice and 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 sells them at a premium during uh, during completion but then there's you know, other people that have tried to do the center court model and they've sold and they thought what they thought was a great price. And then they realized one year into they're just getting their financing and pricing's up. $150, $175 (laughs) $150, $175 yeah, <laughs> yeah. per square foot. And they're like, wow, I just left a lot of money on the table and construction costs are up and interest rates are up and, and everything is, is eating into their, into their pro forma eating, eating away. Yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, it's intra. That's for me, that's the most fascinating part, it, it of, is. part of it.
1: And, and I don't think it's really, you know, scientific or crystal ball. I mean, there's risk in either Model you want to follow, exactly. Exactly. because if you're holding off some units that some builders had done, and they were successful in getting their pre-construction eighty percent of the revenue, and left some of them um, for as construction was going on, quicker closing or immediate closing, then the market hits a wall like we <laughs> yeah, are like today, we are now. Yeah. and now that's that's your profit, your last twenty percent of those units that you're now carrying if they're built. You know, I know there's not a lot of standing inventory, but as you get closer to that and you start to have to pay taxes, maintenance fees, utilities, so you have to now pay to carry them. Yeah. So there's a risk in that. Um, there is also a risk in in blowing it out right away because you can't always control, you know, you might have a good idea costs and, and, and good contingencies. But again, there are delays that happen with the city. There are delays that happen with, you know, there there are still some, some price Pressure or or costs that that come up that you you might not have uh, accounted for. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if either one of them is is a guaranteed success, but I think that they obviously have done it enough times that, <laughs> yeah. that it's working yeah. for them, yeah. and and yeah. that's that's a, a yeah. great so formula th- yeah. for them. I mean,
0: I, I think you know. I don't want to talk bad about Brad, but obviously the model didn't work in Ottawa because when he did that strategy in Ottawa, the market went down and he couldn't, even at at completion, he couldn't sell them for the same as you sold them three years earlier. Right. right? right. And I think there's probably going to be some buildings like that in Toronto moving forward that sold that came out in poor areas at 1750,
1: 1790
0: uh, per square (laughs) foot. And now it, those numbers seem ridiculous because the resale market is staying stagnant. at you know 1100 1200 yeah. bucks a yeah. fun right yeah. so um i think in the future you know interest rates are going to go back down yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we'll start to see renewed interest in in product but this is the first time that we might actually see a decrease in new condo prices year over year right it hasn't happened for 26 consecutive years right, right? right. so quite uh, quite a string of 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 years where where pricing has gone up right yep. so
1: yeah um, for sure
0: yeah and, and even I like you know someone who's involved in trying to price a building I sometimes can't see the value in the floor, in the floor plan, right? Is this a better floor plan than this, this plan? Like what is, what is a corner unit really worth, right? I have a base price. And then I think in certain areas that a corner is maybe worth six to 8% more. That's kind of the number that's in my head now. And then I think, okay, what is a, what is an East versus a, a North? And in some markets, I have lots and lots of resale data and I run it. And it won't necessarily show that what I think it should show, like this is what it should show in a waterfront. It shows it. Right. It really shows that the, the South, the South views have a, you know, a massive uh, premium, but in other areas of the city, there's, there can, there can be almost no, no difference versus East versus West, North to South. Right. So it uh, you know, it's only a matter of time where where an algorithm starts to replace my tiny brain, (laughs) but still, like i said the data is 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 still not there right, right. there's still not a uh, a database that i go out and purchase and go okay this these the bedrooms are nine by eleven and the living rooms x by x and the linear kitchens are and versus a uh, you know uh, something that's less open concept what's that worth mm-hmm. right i think that's a real missing um, um data set in our marketplace mm-hmm. all right that just doesn't exist to, try to help that stuff. Yeah. So I guess that's good for us yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the try to value these buildings. Right. So okay, let's, m- let's move up to, you know, 2011 and 2012, probably two of the best years ever for, for the new condo market. There was a lot of talk about, a US style meltdown in Canada it was almost that was still you know 2011 2012 was probably a, a, a time where people still picked up the newspaper read it every single day you know people read the globe and the star and in the post and, and and articles that were written in those those newspapers had a lot of um, you know uh, a lot of cachet but it seemed like you know every single week there was another article some yeah. some halfwit housing bear and yeah. rural <laughs> Canada, some some fringe American hedge fund analyst was getting quoted about the Toronto market and how it's parallels to this and parallels to that and and uh, price to rent ratios and, and and they're just throwing any piece of data that they could compare to the US before the crash to show that our market was was gonna go down. And we're talking again six hundred 550, 600 bucks a foot at this point yeah. in time. So it just shows you how, how they thought that was just so overvalued and we were going to be, you know, oversupplied. What do you remember about, you know, that, that time and, 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 and how did, and did you have, you know, a lot of buyers that were coming to you and saying, Oh, I'm reading all this negative stuff in the paper, or were they the ones that were just I'm going to be the contrarian. I don't care what's in the newspaper. I'm, yeah. I I th- I believe in the long-term value of Toronto real estate and that's why I'm investing in it. I'm just curious if if you had to have many of these conversations with lenders or buyers or even your own yeah. bosses at the time. Yeah.
1: And 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 it was definitely um in the papers all the time. You and I used to talk about it too like, "Oh my gosh, oversupply, oversupply." And I don't even think in in your um, uh, all your work that you've done you haven't seen a, a problem with oversupply in in yeah i mean
0: I, I i i always said we need to look at the the market holistically yeah right we can't just look at the condo market and say wow look how many more condos have been built we need to look at let's say how many housing units have yeah. been built right and, and but and our population
1: less... growth like it's, it's so robust with, yeah. with the immigration most of the immigration coming to canada comes to either toronto or vancouver yeah um, and, you know, the, the, the low immigration, as I mentioned, or sorry, the, uh, the low unemployment um, and, and a strong economy and, and everything else the city has to offer. And such an exciting part of being in this industry that you're always seeing with new projects, what's all happening coming up in the Portland's or coming up at East Harbor and, you know, all these great things, Keyside. like there's some really exciting projects coming to the city. Yeah. Um, so I, I always felt, and, and, and that we had always a problem of being undersupplied. I never saw that line up to a problem of being oversupplied. I think it was interesting, and even in today's pricing, you know, the investors definitely had to supply um, a lot of the, the sales in order for us to get to the finish line for these buildings to be built with with their um, access to a lot of the, the clients they have. But they also had a better understanding of the broader market. I think the, the typical born and raised Torontonian really couldn't get over the fact that we were seeing prices go up as quickly and they would you know, it would be every conversation, every dinner conversation, every conversation, <laughs> every lawyer, every accountant would, would, they just couldn't believe that the, the city was going to grow like this. Yeah. Whereas investors with some of these people that had come from countries overseas and and realized the what Toronto had to offer compared to what they came from and the prices where they came from, and we were still under undervalued, yeah. um, they saw the big picture. And so I think that that just balanced out. Everyone's you know, feeling that, that really this city is still going in a great direction of growth. And yeah. if there were signs of you know, doom and gloom as far as you know, no jobs and, and poor economy and nobody coming to our city... Maybe there'd be some concern, but yep. all of those factors were going in yeah, the right direction. Yeah, and I
0: think yeah, almost everyone I ha- I've had on the the podcast uh, has said they regretted not buying more units right after yes. the fact. Right? Oh, yeah. They're like, we're in we're in this industry, I understand this industry, and uh, and I. I was even even I bought into some of that nonsense yeah, yeah. that was that was that was out there, right? Well,
1: I wouldn't be here right now. Just say that if I bought in every building I worked <laughs> on, I'd, my yacht would be selling off, and off to my yeah. private plane somewhere. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> should have, would have, could have. Yeah, sure.
0: I mean, there's so many projects that I thought, oh, that's such a great deal, but I was you know, I was just, Life I was just, you know, yeah. or, kids yeah, and yeah. dogs and changing jobs. And you just, you just scared. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, uh, so there's something about a person that And we uh, are
1: conservative by nature, I think yeah. as, as Canadians, but, uh, I did jump in and a few times and it's worked out, but yeah, it's, <laughs> um, it's interesting. And, and at the beginning I wasn't going to buy, cause it was, I was almost too close to the industry yeah. and I knew too much that I was like I'm not buying this <laughs> yeah. no, I know what's going to happen here yeah. but at the end of the day you just uh Decide to do
0: it. That's funny. So, so let's. Uh, you know, we're we are we have talked a lot, and we haven't even talked about your 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 consulting firm. So, you have decided to go out on your own. When was this? 2015. What was kind of the the idea and the the and what what service did you want to provide?
1: Well, I thought um, when I was with Baker Real Estate, it was really interesting to be on the on the uh, service side and service some developers, even though I had come from a developer background. And I all of a sudden realized that there was a lot of inexperience in development and a lot of developers coming from low rise to high rise, um, which I had already been through that learning curve at Monarch. So I started uh, my own business and I work for clients that um, I've, I've, I've known them for many years, but just people that how important it is to do the demising and really the demising all starts with, how much GFA you have. And and one floor plate may, may have 10,000 square foot of GFA. Mm-hmm. And typically you wanna try and get an 85% efficiency. 15% of it is corridors and hallways and stairs you can't ever sell. So yeah. you wanna try and get it as 85% that you can sell. the the architects, you know, with all due respect to the architects, try to put it all together like a puzzle so that it all fits. They need garbage chutes. They need uh, electrical closets. They need, you know, all this stuff to fit. And then I I would look at it and some developers didn't really know any different and and carry on. And I would say, yeah, but the big unit ended up being in the most challenging location facing right into another building. You know, if you're going to be if you're going to be buying the biggest unit and the most expensive unit, don't you want the best view? Of course you do. Mm-hmm. So I would start shoveling, shuffling the puzzle pieces around and say, okay, I would rank the four corners and say, this is the best corner, Southwest, City View, Lake View, Southeast, Northwest, Northeast. And I would then, based on the number one ranking, that's where our biggest unit is going to go and then go from there. And then the most challenging location, you put the smallest units because really, um, that, that you're not going to spend a lot of money if, if your view is entirely blocked. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of recognize that that wasn't done that well in the industry. And what happens is if you don't get the demising, right, it's not like a single family home and, you know, you got something wrong and you just change the out the house type. You can't do that. Yeah. And so you've got to start discounting. You realize that that big unit, you've got to start discounting it 20, 30,000 each, um, because people don't want to buy it because it's not in the... It, the orientation just doesn't match yeah. the, the sweet price. So yeah. demising was a really, really big thing for me. And I I absolutely just love it. I've done it most of the time with just piece of paper and pencil, but now I do, you know, do it on the computer. But yeah. give me 10,000 square feet and I'll take 8,500 square feet of it as saleable. I, I don't determine where the corridors and whatnot go, but I will literally... Put each unit all the way around the the, the perimeter, like of the building of which size, how many bedrooms, um, and and where they should be in the building, and and then I pass that on with the developer, and then they send it to the architect. You never get it 100% perfect because yeah. there are you know restrictions with needing a, the entrance to a suite so so many feet from a stairwell and and all kinds of different things, but the demising is just so important, and even used to demise it before we would get it ready to go on sale. But before that, somewhere, somewhere two years beforehand, they have to go in for site plan application and all kinds of um, zoning and, and things yeah. like that. They would just throw in a, a any kind of plans. And I'd say, but you know you know what? You better look at it to get it as close as possible as to you want it because all of a sudden when we do do it and we realize – we need to cut the pie in more pieces. You put ten units on that floor plate. Yeah. We need fifteen units on that floor plate. Now you got five units per floor. You got to go back to the city and tell them. I guess what we need an extra eighty units. Do it right at the get go. And now my my clients bring me in before they go in for their first SPA and um, any applications because get the number as close as possible as it's going to be when you want it because. Whenever you want to go back and ask for more, (laughs) it's not going to work because then you're going to impact traffic again. And then you're going to impact, you know, parking spaces. You're going to impact so many different things, the amount of amenity space you have to have. So the demising is is such an important role that unless you really have done it um, a number of times and you can see it, it's 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 not something that people generally have automatic experience in. So. I did see that there was um, a lack of really great knowledge in that area. And I thought that's what I want to do first. Once the demising is set, then you start getting into the floor plan development. And, you know, the floor plans, as we know, when I started in one hundred and sixty five dollars a square foot, a thousand square feet was one hundred and sixty five thousand. So we didn't have to worry the way (laughs) we do now. And that was a one bedroom. So a one bedroom now. 420 to 450 square feet so how do you still make this suite work well for one thing there's no hallways there's no foyer when you get into the suite you're yeah. in the kitchen there's <laughs> yeah. no hallways to the bedrooms the bedroom doors are off the living room but you can still try to um manage that the the spaces that you're going to be living the most in like the living room dining room they're as spacious as can be there's some storage space that you can try and, and get creative ways in, in doing but the floor plan layouts are also very important and you know like you just said when you don't see a difference in the resale market that's something I'm always saying because we have a one bedroom at 420 square feet and we have a one bedroom at 480 square feet and I go okay guys and they're like that, that's okay like it's 480 yeah bedroom dimensions are pretty much the same you know I said, so it's 60 square foot bigger at $1,500 a square foot. I always do the math and I always say to them, instead of saying this is 50 or 60 square foot too big, I say, this is $90,000 too big. That kind of gets their attention because why is someone going to pay $90,000 more for that when it really, it has a little bit of a bigger hallway or the bathrooms a bit, you know? So. I try to keep things as tight as possible. You know, when you're doing a one bedroom, now there's differences between an interior one bedroom or a, or a bedroom on a window. You know, there's a premium for, for that. Um, there's there's a premium for, for a den. But other than that, like you, you've mentioned, a lot of times with the orientation, unless it's like the lake view, there's not a lot of difference, especially right down Toronto, downtown. There's usually some building in your, in your view (laughs) on on either side, unless you're right on the lake. And so that, that really, um, it doesn't matter that much. So I, I make sure that we do the suite sizes and, and the layouts, um, generally fairly similar in their own product type, um, I can elaborate on that even more, yeah. or, or we can get on <laughs> no, to another I mean, question. It's it's, I mean, it's,
0: it's it's fantastic stuff because not a lot of people talk about it. And not a lot of people have enough experience with yeah, it, right? Yeah. I mean, I I um, one interesting thing I've started to see more is I'll get plans from a developer. And... Initial plans, so this is very first plans put together, uh, and they'll have like forty percent studios. So I'm like, oh, why forty percent studios? Because that same thing. If we go in to the you know to the municipality, we want to ask for more, and then go back for less units okay, after the fact. Well, that's right? the other. The other so extreme, they're, yeah. they're, 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 But we also and, have and, to yeah. be conscious of. You know if we went 40 percent studios and then go into the municipality and they uh, and they see that we only have uh, you know a parking ratio of 30 percent or yeah. something then they might start to get angry as well yeah. right yeah. so it's it's uh it's always interesting to, to 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 come in and try to you know play around with it i mean the tower is probably a little bit easier than these mid-rise yeah. projects right yeah. like when i'm trying to make recommendations on the unit mix i'm doing it you know, straight from a market perspective, right. Right? I'm not, right? I'm not bringing your type of perspective to it, but I still wonder, even from my market perspective, okay, we want to shrink the size of that hallway because yeah. that's unsellable yeah. units, right? Yeah. So the best way to shrink the hallway is to build bigger units on the corners. Yeah. But at what point in time do those units get too big that it offsets the fact that it's going to take longer to sell or the price yeah. per square foot's going to go down versus, okay, we're losing, we're, we're, we have to, uh, you know, increase the size of the hallway. Right. Yeah. So it's an interesting Everything is a very to, very <laughs> to delicate have, balance, right?
1: And, and, you know, it's, it's the amount of time and thought and so many considerations on how to put these buildings together I mean, a lot of people will say, "Oh, these builders are all building these small units." And all. I said, "They hate building small yeah. units. I mean, they'd rather <laughs> build ten, a thousand square foot units on one floor because it's more kitchens to do smaller unit, more bathrooms. Yeah. Um, it, it's all driven by cost, and it's all driven by what people can afford. And we constantly have to, you know, think that through as." we're designing a building today that's not going to be delivered for four or five years not only on the suite sizes and what the effective price will be but on all the amenities and and yeah. um, technology and everything else yeah. that's coming down the yeah. basically
0: the only thing that's more expensive on a, on a larger unit is development charges right yeah. other yeah. than that you're going to be building fewer walls and fewer kitchens and fewer bathrooms and fewer front doors and fewer legals and all that all that stuff right and i've had a number of developers
1: try to convince me that let's just go with bigger units lower development uh, sorry bigger units less kitchens less bathrooms and we'll just sell it at a lower price per square foot it's like no a thousand square feet you know you'd have to discount it you're not you're not gonna wanna go to the price per square foot yeah. to discount it where you want the end selling to price to be at a five hundred square foot unit. Yeah. And you're still not gonna sell it. Yeah. Uh, the absorptions are still gonna be much slower. So yeah. I just worked on a
0: project recently where that was the case. Yeah. They, they didn't wanna change the floor plans. Yeah. They went out at a price that was literally per square foot less average on this building that they would have got. And it still didn't sell.
1: No, no, no. And, you know, leaving GFA on the table is always a concern with developers. They want to, whatever they bought, they want to sell every little (laughs) foot of it, which again, sometimes if you're going to try and use a GFA, but the suites are too big, by the time you discount it, you might as well have shaved the building back a little bit, get optimal suite sizes, maximize your revenue, get your absorptions and and carry on. But, it's an interesting mindset that that's out there that i've yeah i've dealt with many times in yeah, my career yeah
0: and that's one issue that i don't like on the retail side is they always want to maximize the retail gfa by pushing everything to the to the street and stuff i'm like well i think if you created more unique retail at grade someone might actually pay yeah, you yeah. higher for that space oh, right yeah. and and I don't know. That's the problem with selling units before you know. A rental developer might put a little bit more thought, thought into into, it, into yeah. the retail because they have to keep reselling, essentially keep reselling those units over and over and over again, right? So, anyways, it's uh, we won't get into retail. that's, no. uh, that's not my thing.
1: That's
0: not my thing. <laughs> that's so. Not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's. it's 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 2023. We are experiencing a uh, pretty slow year in terms of in terms of new condo sales. We have highest interest rates in a, in, a, in a very long time. Demand is down, but projects are still launching. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're having even having projects sell out still, mm-hmm. right? Um, I find the most successful projects are kind of coming out at like a fall 2021 price level, yeah. right? Some are some are still kind of. Trying to push that March 2022 yeah. peak of the market price, and uh, and finding um, you know not getting quite the reception that they they want, and then obviously there's there's all these incentives that we try to tra- track, ah, but yeah. it's always very difficult yeah. to, to put a number on that. What just get your high level perspective on 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 what what you're seeing in the market right now, the and and the level of confidence in some of the developers yeah. you're working with. I
1: I don't see how developers can really adjust pricing down too much when material prices labor land costs haven't come down Mm -hmm. so you know for them to make the numbers work they obviously have to have a certain percentage of return that they have to show the bank before they'll get their construction financing and and it's it's quite often pretty you know just on the line like just just getting there not not a lot more and and so um a lot of them they can't really go out much lower. So I think today's interest rates, which, you know, I bought my first home in 1982 and the interest rates were 21 and three quarters percent, but wow. a lot of people don't remember that. And that's when there were buy downs, like the builder was buying down to 11 and three quarters. And, you know, but that was, that was my rate back at the time, but the, obviously the prices were that much cheaper. So launches, yes, they're still happening in a real triple A location. They're still selling. I think that investors are still finding that in a really um great location that there will still be price growth um rental rates are going up but not to the extent of being in the in the black anymore so it's tough that what you're buying for today and what you're renting for you the rule of thumb was never to be out of pocket every month you know you'll have the capital gain realized at some point which is still i believe the case in toronto i still think there's room to grow um but yeah, I think th- we still need, we, we need product. Like if, if there were no launches at all and we already have a problem with supply, with stuff that's being built from the sales of two years ago and three years ago. Mm-hmm. Not that builders are going to go out and sell just because there's no supply. They want to want to be successful. You know, you have to do a lot of different things. You have to sell now. I'm, I'm not ever saying that salespeople were order takers, but mm-hmm. we have to be a little more creative. Yeah, I mean, incentives... Um, They'll come back and bite you at the end of the day when you start seeing cost per square foot of how much you're giving away. Yeah, And as one of my developer clients said, it's like pissing in the wind. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, you, you can't just keep throwing money at it. I mean, I think and I've said to some of my clients, we have been here and this too shall pass because – once people get confident again, once the Bank of Canada says we're not going to raise rates, and then eventually, maybe next year, we don't know, if they start going in the other direction, that will really change the buyer's mindset. No matter what you throw at them now, whether it's, you know, trying to educate them or trying to give them more incentives or trying to, I, I, they've got to be confident that what I'm buying at today, rates are not still climbing out of control that I don't know where they're going to end up. Until they get that confidence that things are stabilized and, and settled, that's when they're going to start getting back that they need a home, and, and they're going to start going back to, to buying something.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a difficult time because costs are still elevated and yeah. and demand is down, right? Yeah. So it's it's a it's a it's a disconnect between what it costs you to build and and what people are willing to buy buy for, right? Because yeah, investors are in it to for capital appreciation in in the city of Toronto. And that's just the way it is. I mean, there's some peripheral markets where people are buying solely because they want to hold it and rent it their entire life. And and they'll, they'll pay for a wood frame laminate flooring you know kind of secondary type product yeah. in our in our marketplace but um you know the the the, the cash flow downtown investor has been yeah. a, at again
1: at completion 18, at completion
0: you know if we we talk about you know a lot of people if you own for a long time then their rents go up and start to surpass your your mortgage costs. so yeah. it's, it's, it's it'll be interesting to see how the mindset of investors change do we start to get the hold for life investors, right? There's definitely a lot of them in the marketplace that say, I'm going to buy this real estate. I'm going to pass it on to my children and they're going to hold that real estate their entire lives. And it's just, they'll just have to, and we pay for someone to manage it. It's really just there, right? It's just there. And and, uh, and
1: sophisticated investors have never been like flippers. Like there's kind of like five years, you should never sell anything for five years of when you took occupancy before you, you start seeing that real appreciation. So the sophisticated investors are in it usually for the long haul. I mean, back in the day when you'd get in a taxi cab and oh, I just bought some, I sold it for $30,000 more, you know, right away flipping it. Yeah. Um, now we, we certainly have a, a bit of a environment of, of assignments being requested for people that don't wanna close with closings coming up because the interest rates are higher or, you know, they they just, yeah, they just don't have the, the closing funds. Um, and those, those are a whole other sort of animal as far as what people might want to sell them for because there's been appreciation. <laughs> yeah. But now if you want to get out, you might just get the price you paid for it and you won't lose your deposit and you don't have to come up with the closing costs and you're ahead. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, have you had any of your clients um, you know, worried about like upcoming closing, closing? Not, like closing risk? You that know, was a question I used to, when I used to do presentations for the banks, it was yeah. the first thing they asked me, yeah. Ben, any closing risk? Yeah. And I would always be like, well, these projects sold at 400 bucks a yeah, foot, exactly. right? And they're now the resale market's 700. Like, yeah. no, there's no, no closing no. risk. And, but now we might, we're starting to get to the point where some projects well, are coming coming to completion today, at the same value, yeah. right? Closing, well, a few, only a few, right? Yeah. There's a few of them out there, but 2024, 2025 could be, could there could be, be some nastiness yeah. if the market doesn't pick up,
1: which I think it will. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in my over 40 years, I've seen, the dips and the challenging markets and, you know, it, 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 we just, we're resilient and Toronto's got so much to offer, like I mentioned, and we're constantly worried about oversupply, people not closing. we've been talking about the same stuff for years. You've been asked the same question for yeah. years. Is the market going to crash? Is this a bubble? Like my goodness. um, You know, I think there's, there's going to be some programs that the builders will come up with for assistance for people to close Uh, whether they have some sort of a a a loan for their closing costs i don't know what it may be but i think they'll do whatever they can to try and get the people to close and work with them as opposed to having the inventory so so again it'll be just a different strategy that'll have to be implemented i mean
0: the 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 fundamentals are there i mean we over the last, whatever, 20 years, we've averaged, you know, immigration into Canada or population growth in Canada, about 300, 360,000. Yeah. Uh, the last reading as of Q2, uh, 2023, 1.21 million. Yes.
1: <laughs> and even just Ontario last <laughs> right, year was 325,000. Yeah,
0: set, set, set you, know, re, you know, record highs and uh, employment rate is still at like, unemployment rate is still at like 5.5, 5.6%. Yeah. So it's nearer the lowest yeah. levels that we've seen in in 30 years right yeah. so so that's so pretty, all the
1: factors are, are there yeah, like so there's still positive. some uh,
0: positive headwinds so yeah. and i think as you know just running some of these rent numbers just I, blows my mind yeah. like the average condo in the city of toronto is is the asking rents like three thousand fifty dollars a month right like just absolutely unbelievable to think that uh, young people are are having to pay that that type of rent and eventually they're going to say, okay, I, mean, I might as well buy something, yeah. right? Even if it is, you know, higher interest rates, or even if I'm a little uncertain about the future of, of the ownership market, you know, I'm, I'm tired of paying this to, yeah. to some guy, right? Uh, I want, or some gal, sorry. You know, oh. no. <laughs> I use that as a, as a, some guy, as yes. some, some, some idiot landlord, right? You know, charging me all this money. So, <laughs> and,
1: and, you know, yeah. Will they ever become, buyers, even if they're set up with paying rent. I mean, when I was growing up, you just didn't rent because you were throwing money out the window. (laughs) Now, you know, and, and a lot of the people that are, have children that age of my children in their thirties, you know, they just can't believe it. And Oh my God, they can't, our kids can't afford to buy. And and I, I always say, I wonder if they're having, We, it's because in their very recent memory, they were able to buy. But in Manhattan or in, in Hong Kong or Amsterdam, they don't have those conversations. Because yeah. that, that ship sailed a long time ago. Yeah. So however many years from now, we won't be talking about it. But the kids seem to, the younger generation is figuring it out. And I agree, like the rent on a one bedroom at 2500 what's happening now is the roommate's, Scenario, yeah. and you look at the sh- the show Friends, and and they were sharing you know spaces <laughs> yeah. in Manhattan. I think that that's what I, I work with a lot of uh, young people at dream, and and most of them have have roommates, um, and and instead of paying twenty five hundred themselves, they're buying a getting renting a thirty six hundred two bedroom and paying eighteen hundred each. Yeah, you know, right there they're saving seven hundred dollars a yeah. month, and I think that that's kind of a trend because even with some of the units that are three bedrooms i'm saying to some of the developers why not doing a three bedroom three bathroom because an investor will rent it out to three three people
0: yeah and that's interesting cuz that was one of the questions that i that i had for you about innovation in the marketplace yeah. i mean i i wonder if anyone's going to do a four bedroom you know, unit that's maybe, you know, 2000 square feet, that's got a small shared area, almost like a, a dorm, right? Yeah. Like, I, I would think that an investor might be interested in something like that. If they could rent each one of those units out at, you know, 1200, 1300 yeah. bucks, and then, you know, um, if,
1: yeah, if and they, they can afford a big... a, the down payment and whatnot, because you're talking over $3 million <laughs> for something that size. So, you know, you got to get through the, the down payment portion of it. Maybe the mortgage payments, yeah, if you're renting out for them at those rates, but it's still a, a, a big number to, to crack at the beginning with a yeah. down payment and, yeah. and closing costs of something that expensive. Yeah. So then, not sure if we'll go and that then, far. Yeah. And
0: then worrying about all those ten- tenants and know, uh, if I they know. screw off. Right. I know. But the one the one that we did talk about on a on a previous episode was something we saw a little bit in Vancouver. It's like the lockup suite. Yeah. So basically you buy like a um you know a nine it's 900 square feet total and then there's a 600 square foot unit or a 700 square foot unit and then like a 300 square foot separate space yeah. right so it's all you're buying one condominium but this one you can lock off separately so you could have a nanny live there yeah. you could have a um you know you could lease it out or you could uh, use it as your own personal office, office right yeah. so that someone doesn't yeah. have to you know come into your bedroom to yeah. <laughs> or come into your den to a meeting. You could actually have a small separate space, but you, you own this, you own this space with so many people working from home and so many independent contractors yeah. and small businesses that, you know, that we know all about. Right. Yeah. Has, has anyone ever proposed that? Have you ever seen anyone even think about doing something like that?
1: No, I haven't. Um, again, you know, you want to do 900 or a thousand square feet and you're close to you know, 1.5 to $2 million. So (laughs) it's again, it's cost prohibitive to do that. Everybody certainly would love a bigger space. I've never seen anybody come into a sales office and say, I can't wait to buy, you know, 450 square feet. But it, 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 again, it's, it's all driven by, uh, by the end selling price. And, you know, I, I've seen it evolve from a thousand square feet for a one bedroom at 165,000 to a thousand square feet at 1.8 million. And what has to give is the size of the unit and, uh, to bring the price down. And that's the only thing you can do. So I think there's some, there's, everyone's always trying to come up with innovative ways, but I think a lot of it is the living outside of your suite, but still within the building and, and being innovative with the, um, the amenity spaces, because, you know, with COVID, a lot of people work from home and a lot of people are still working from home. You can work from home, but if your kids are home or your dogs or you have to meet with somebody, you know, the co-working space, we, we do some really great innovative co-working spaces that you can either have, you know, your own um, your own space that if you have a private meeting or, or you're, you're amongst other people, that could turn into the party room at the, in the evening um, so all of the things that are, are being more innovative are how to design the suite to still make it livable and how the amenity spaces are going to help extend your living space because the, the unit itself is small and that could be dining facilities. If you have a big dinner party, it's guest suites are, are extremely, extremely popular like the building I'm in. Because if you do have whoever in-laws or someone coming to stay with you, you can't you don't have space big enough. Yeah. And then, you know, there's, there's more and more families and children going into condos. Again, ground-oriented homes have, have become out of reach. and um, So we have a lot of children's play areas now, play outdoor and indoor. So it's always evolving to the, the way the, the suites are changing and becoming smaller and, and how people are living. You know, the, the fitness rooms used to be in a dark basement somewhere. Just let's throw it in the yeah. underground. Now this is a bad space. Let's yeah, let's just yeah. throw the gym there. And now you there, got the right? yoga area, and you've got. I've always said let's use a personal training room. I see in my gym there's people with a personal trainer, and they're sort of trying to yell over the person in the corner. So, <laughs> you know, all those things. Some of some of the fitness rooms are doing some Peloton bikes, and however people are starting to to work out and live and work and and uh, enjoy leisure time. We're we're always sort of evolving in that yeah, way. I
0: see the uh, I see the exercise room when I come in on the Go Train to downtown for the Market Wharf project, oh, yeah. and they have the the uh, treadmills that look out over yeah. the water. The gardener, I'm like, well, water. that yeah. actually make you wanna, makes <laughs> you wanna go wanna running, on the treadmill. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> I know. I-
0: um, I do have a, a question. I'm not sure that that anyone's ever proposed it, but I did have one developer ask me about movable walls. is mm-hmm. any have you ever was that something that Monarch looked at, or has anyone ever thought about that? Because I think of if you've got 420 square feet, I know would it be possible for those walls, you know, the bed to go up like a Murphy, and then the walls to collapse in, so you've now opened your space up that extra uh, whatever, you know. Uh, uh, 50 60 yeah. 70 uh, extra square feet of your living space could just you know collapse in on itself or see you know yeah
1: yeah and and i think one of the home builder tours we went on in in manhattan actually was it's funny it was mick jagger's daughter jade jagger and she had a project called the, the jade and she had that like you moved a wall and and so when you're finished cooking the kitchen was not seen anymore so now you're just you know doing whatever you're doing in there so there there has been some smart suites there was one building built just uh west of university on queen street on the south side of queen street is that urban capital yeah and and they did a lot of really creative things but Again, there's a cost to it. And some of the things that you're trying to be innovative and you're just trying so hard to maintain an end selling price that is already getting so high based on just regular costs of regular construction, labor and land, (laughs) let alone innovative stuff. But as the innovation becomes more and more, you know, mainstream, then some price of that comes down. But haven't really... Dug too deep in, into what that's going to look like yet, and and quite often it's because it's just too cost prohibitive. Yeah, and I think people might like it, but I don't think.
0: Yeah, the one thing I thought it. that would be much more popular would to be a balcony that you could enclose. You could pull down something to connect to your 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 railing, and it could be an indoor space that you yeah. could use during the winter. But I've never, you know, I I've, I remember one developer doing it, and I can't remember what project it was. But this is going back like. 2011 or 2012 someone actually doing that where you could you could close off your your space
1: the effect on drainage and condensation and you know again there's so many things that happen that if the space was enclosed and and it had no breathing and then there's condensation issues and it starts to you know deteriorate the concrete and like (laughs) there's there's always some ideas and and they're not just excuses not to do it but there's usually like these buildings have so if many, I've
0: thought of it, and if I've seen it out there, then lots of people have probably yeah. thought about it, and there's reasons why they don't do it, And right? even,
1: even people that put the wood slats on their balcony concrete, you know, even there's even problems with that, with deterioration of concrete wow. underneath there. Yeah. So, you can't, it, you know, a lot of people try and treat a condo like a house and say, well, I'll just do this, and I'll yeah. do that, and I'll put lights up here, and I'll, it's like, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and some of the rules seem to be a little you know, over the top, but if you didn't have rules when you've got 400 people living in the same place, it's, it's pretty interesting what some people do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Throw chairs off of it, and try yeah. land and, it on people's heads. That's right. <laughs> well, we we've gone through a lot of my, my questions here. What I do want to ask you this, cause this, this is kind of interesting. I was asked to, to, for, for, for a client to look and say they wanted to show that mid rise buildings appreciated faster than high rise. And, and I, I thought for sure that the data would show that it that it did. So I ran a, a bunch of buildings in in Scarborough and East Toronto, and the, the mid-rise ones tended to be in East Toronto, so technically a slightly better locations than some of the Scarborough ones. But in the end, it turned out that the high-rise buildings had better appreciation over yeah. the long term than the mid-rise. I'm just curious if that's if. If you ever had those types of discussions or what you think explains the fact are people much more willing to pay for, uh, views? Are they willing to pay for more amenities? Um, is it just being close to transit that, uh, that maybe is the, the turning point? Um, any thoughts?
1: And I think if you ask people, a lot of people would prefer to live in a boutique smaller building yeah, exactly, than, a, than right? a monster building, um, from a cost point, And you touched on it, like it's it's more cost effective to build a high rise tower as each floor is repeated all the way up. So there's economies of scale, whereas mid rise each floor, you you don't even have two floors that are typically the same floor plate because you have terracing and whatnot. So the cost to build a mid rise is, is higher than than a high rise. But I don't know, like from the data, where was the high rise sold a little bit less expensive than the mid rise? I mean, yeah, that's, um, that's probably the issue—is that,
0: that the premium is already built into yes. the pre-construction yeah, price. that's what I whereas think. Whereas some of these other high rises were built in in maybe secondary locations, yeah. so the developer had to discount them, and then over time they became better neighborhoods because it. we've added all these new units, right? And all this so, other
1: stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's
0: always interesting when yeah. people ask me. Ben, where should I invest? I always recommend an area that I think could potentially be up and coming. Because yeah. they might just say, Well, Ben, why would I buy in Weston? I'm like, yeah. well Weston's gonna be this place to that, be. That's right. In ten years from now. It's the and Wayne you're,
1: Gretzky. Uh, you're paying that
0: discount now. Right, the and Wayne Gresky theory: yeah.
1: go to where the puck's going. Yeah, go where not the where the puck's it going. Is, you know? Yeah,
0: so which is always interesting because if a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to buy the bet, ba- I'm going to buy Yorkville, I'm yeah. going to buy this, yeah. and but uh, yeah. even though Yorkville has gone up much more than I even anticipated yeah. that it that it would have. Right, yeah. and thinking back, you know, I think we had, you know, I I read a quote from Devin Cranson, or I was at an event that he spoke at, and uh, where he said, yeah, our our investors made way more money than we made on this project because they bought in at 1100 bucks a foot and now the units are worth 1800 to $2,000 a foot. Right. So, uh, Yorkville really experienced some, some crazy growth over, uh, over, you know, kind of a, five, six year period that it takes to build a 60 story tower with heritage at the base uh, beside a subway station. Right. So
1: it's interesting. My, my husband and daughter are both real estate agents and I'm sort of more on the developer side and they're always, you know, you're just talking developer and, you know, and, (laughs) and I, and we have a lot of interesting conversations, but I, I always find it that people and you've you've touched on this on your podcast that everyone thinks it, they're the big bad developer and they're they're making all kinds of money and you know there's a lot of nimbyism out there that you know people just do not want something built right beside them even though they bought that someone else might not want <laughs> yeah, it exactly and but it's such a risk you know the business to the risk you take the amount of money you have to borrow like one of the projects I'm doing, they have to borrow like over $600 million to build the tower. I mean, most people wouldn't sleep at night. And yeah. so, you know, and, and to get things right. And, and I'm talking like from everything from the, the moving room to the underground, to the, to the garbage area pickup to, you know, the, the elevator stacks to that. There are so many levels of what needs to be thought of in these condominiums. and, and if you get them wrong, it's it's a very costly mistake. So, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think you mentioned it once too. Is is there's that top tier that that might have done very well and and work very hard and are very bright, like a and you know. Um, but but the rest for the rest of them, it's it's quite the grind. And and you know, they're building housing because we need housing. You know, it's not as if and and there's a real effort now too to. Um, we're starting to get some of the renowned architecture into our city. It was a lot of precast and glass. And a lot of it was the, the, the green shade of glass. That was the most cost effective. Um, again, you, you try and do something different with the elevation and the exterior. And what happens is that the cost goes up. If you do more jobs and you do um, any, anything like that affects the, the construction costs. And again, people are, well, it looks nice, but I'm really just living in my unit, so I'm not going to pay a premium for that. Yeah. So, at least we are starting to get some more interesting architecture. There's there's ways that people are trying to work out how we can get some some premiums and get that happening in the city, which is exciting to see.
0: Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting. We we all, people like to throw developers all into one bucket right okay. and there's there's this top tier of developers that yeah. where they've built projects for for 10 20 years they have an institutional mindset they can go to the TD's and the BMO's yeah. and the RBC's and get uh, preferential uh, uh, um, you know, rates and and they have their own construction teams right and that's great, but they're they're not going to do projects that are less than 300,000 square feet of GFA. Yeah. That's the type of projects that they're going to do. They're they're widgetized, they're commoditized. Yeah. Yeah. But the type of projects that, that a lot of the people that complain about developers want are built by small people with, with and the uh, smaller developers yeah. with tight margins, yeah. right? So you have to. Take into consideration the the costs and the risks that yeah, go into those yeah. types of projects. I just I could never be a developer. No. I could not take the risk. Just even just the not being sleeping. This, the, this exactly. I just couldn't be able to sleep at night. I just you know I was had a conversation with a buddy of mine who's just finishing his first project, and you know he calls and the lender and says, "Well, I haven't got the delay," and he's like, "Oh, don't worry. It's only going to be a week from now." which yeah. doesn't sound like much, yeah. but the trade guy calls him and says, if you don't pay me yeah. in two days, we're leaving and we're not coming yeah. back, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And I just can't imagine how the stress of that, There's, where yeah. just a, a, guy in a, a guy in a, you know, he works out of the Calgary office and yeah, it's only a week, yeah. like what's your problem, right? And it's like, ah, am I gonna find someone else to finish this project if I don't pay this guy in time? I don't have the money, you know, I couldn't deal with that. There are so many moving targets. Stuff, I've, know? I've
1: worked, you know, um, beside developers for, for my whole career. And, and really I, I give them a lot of credit because there, there is just, like you said, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of so many moving parts that if one or two of them go the wrong way, you know, it's, it's not like you, you make a mistake in a house and it costs you $30,000. You make a mistake in a condo and And you have to, you know, it's, it's into the millions, millions of
0: dollars in in delays and things that are totally out of your control, right? You know, weather even could could delay you, right? You know, or, or a virus virus. that uh, takes over the frigging world, right? So yeah, unbelievable how resilient some of these, some of these, some of these people in our industry are. And and that's why I find it fascinating. That's why I have a podcast to talk about it. So, um, so before we go on to the, to the rapid fire, was there, or any, you know, projects that you wanted to talk about, that you're working on any, uh, anything that you think is, is interesting that our, that our listeners would love to hear about. I know you're working on some interesting stuff right now.
1: Yeah. I am very fortunate that I work for some developers that, um, you know, are doing a lot of interesting projects. And right now I'm working on the one key side with, with dream and great golf. And that's, that's what the one that was going to be the Google sidewalk yeah. lab and, and, um, and, yeah, some really interesting architecture, wood construction, um, a lot of environmental, sustainable, so really cool stuff. A
0: lot of green on the outside of the buildings. Yeah, We'll, yeah. We, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to keep these plants alive. Yeah, in our, that's a good
1: question. <laughs> um, but that, that is really some exciting stuff. And finishing off the whole Canary District has been exciting from when we started, when it was being used as the Pan Am F- F- Athletes Village. Yeah. You know, just just starting construction on on the Frank Gehry Forma building that I worked on with them. And, you know, that was that was that was probably my most challenging building in the sense that I try to tell developers we have to design from the inside out. The units are getting small and we can't have all these curves and angles to, you know, to try and get these and sweet support beams to, in the middle yeah. of
0: units. Right? Well, you don't tell Frank
1: Gehry that. I yeah. mean, he, he's a renowned architect. He wants a landmark in this city. It's going to be stunning. And that between that and 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 the structure required to hold up that eighty odd, eighty plus story building, it was very challenging to design the, the yeah. suites because that the architecture was designed from the outside in. And but but I mean, when that thing's built, it's it's just going to be such a great landmark and in in the city and have such a, a statement. And it was really interesting working with uh, the company and and Frank Gehry being involved with it. And I'm doing some projects, still young in Eglinton, has um, projects I'm working with uh, with Reserve. And I've got uh, Corktown, which is which is still growing, and, and Broccolini. A couple of uh, purpose built rentals that I'm doing, um, DMJ is a company. So I've got in Pickering, Highmark, I think, you know, a lot of the peripheral areas now that are offering a little bit of a better price point than than the downtown core and as long as you've got the go train and other transit options so lots of lots of great stuff i i just get so excited still after all these years i love what i do and just want to keep going <laughs>
0: yeah well, that's awesome yeah I mean I love trying to figure it out I mean yeah. it's, a, it's a puzzle and 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 I'm learning every day trying yeah. to get better and that's you know trying to have as many of these conversations as possible because you can have you can have all the data that you that that you want but you have to understand how to parse it correctly and you have to understand the the anecdotes of the information that yeah. was why I was going going back to the you know the 2013s of the world where 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 people who had the data but they didn't know understand why it was saying that the yeah. way that it was yeah. and, and that's that's always much more important than even just having the information yeah. is why is it changing? Yeah. What are the factors about why it's changing? And that's why I always have to dig into, to, you know, pricing even now pricing in the, in, in the amalgamated city of Toronto is going down. Right. But yeah. why is it going down? Yeah. Because no projects launching in the downtown corridor yeah. in Yorkville at yeah. high prices. So they're launching in Etobicoke and, and, uh, and Scarborough and North York and, and, uh, and East York. And that's making the prices go down. But someone that's, New to the business, was just go. Oh, look, Toronto yeah. condo prices. New condo prices going down. Oh, investors losing money. Yeah. But it's, it's no. they don't understand composition. They no. don't understand the changes. So,
1: and there's so many. I mean, every project. I mean, that's why it keeps you. You know that that I'm so have such passion after all the projects I've done because not one of not two of them are the same. You yeah. know, like every single one has a different characteristic. Whether it's the the requirements in the city and the setbacks and the bylaws or whatever. But they all have a very different starting point and story from how you're going to make them, you know, create them to what they're yeah. going to become. So it's it's super exciting. Yeah, I, and I the it.
0: market conditions are always changing. So and that too, and that too <laughs> so for sure. Each market provides its own unique challenges. So I know that you've listened to the podcast, and you know about our world famous rapid fire segment. So um, so let's just jump into it. So you you know the rules. You're 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 you know five 10 word responses to to these questions and we'll uh, uh most of them are real estate related but we always hit you with a couple extra fun ones so let's so here we go so if the resale market remains flat in 2023 and early 2024 do you think that the majority or a lot of investors will quote unquote cut their losses and and sell into a into a poor market Do you think they're or do you think they'll hold and try to wait out the downturn
1: I think anybody that's a sophisticated, educated investor will will hold on. Hold on. I think so, They too. have faith that the Toronto market will be back.
0: So I understand that there is a company out of Montreal using big data and AI to determine new condo prices and unit mixes. How many more years do you think we have before we're replaced by a computer?
1: <laughs> um, I think there will be elements that AI can can help out on, but I'm not sure how, you know, Demising an actual floor plate to be done by that. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's going to be exciting to see all this AI and what it's going to do, but yep. I still think I we'll think it's just some- going to
0: make us even smarter. Yeah. Right. And I think that's that's ultimately the way I look at it, I mean, the type of powerful software that I use for the work that I, I'm done. Once I layer on an AI on top of that, I'm just going to become go, even go, even more powerful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so if you're going on a vacation, are you going to a beach or you want to walk around a city?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. I love both. But I, I love walking around and seeing new cities and, and buildings and architecture. I'm the same way. I'm the
0: same way. Okay, so Olivia Chow was thinking about a municipal sales tax. Is that a better idea than raising property taxes? Uh, <laughs> That's a tough one. It's
1: a tough one. Because we're in the real estate industry,
0: so raising property taxes can be uh, uh, I can be difficult.
1: I, we don't even know what that percentage is yeah, going to be, yeah. yet, so remains to be seen.
0: When people downsize out of a larger single-family house to a smaller condo, Should they just ditch all their old furniture and buy all new stuff?
1: Well, if they have big bulky furniture that fit in their big house, it's not going to look too good in a small (laughs) condo. So I'd say ditch, start all over again.
0: I think so too. That's the way to go. Um, Do investors care if a developer is ESG compliant?
1: Um, I don't think that that's really on their mind. I mean, I think sustainability and, and, you know, to do with the environment is people would, like to say that I'm contributing to the carbon footprint, but it's not one of the biggest uh, factors when they're buying.
0: Yeah, no, I wouldn't think so. Um, are $1,000 real estate conferences worth the money?
1: Hmm. They used to be for me when I was learning a lot of things, but not so much anymore. (laughs) I find I can get information so many other places. I I,
0: I think in the start of my career, I think they were invaluable for meeting a lot of new people and connecting with new people and really hearing a lot about what's happening in in the market. But now I think with podcasts, with... X or uh, formerly Twitter, yeah. you can get a lot of feedback about what's happening in the market really, really quickly. You, you right, can. so yeah. it's a little bit different than uh, than it was before. But uh, shout out to the conferences; they're yeah. they're still doing a good job. Yeah. And they're still yeah. they're still fun to take a day off of yeah. work and uh, and uh, eat some ch- uh, some chicken that comes out to everyone all at once <laughs> on a tray. <laughs> okay, I know that you're a very skilled volleyball player. If you could spike a volleyball into anyone's face. <laughs> Who would it be?
1: You know, I I life's too short to hold a grudge, so I'm not spiking any ball <laughs> in anybody's face.
0: <laughs> um, do celebrity endorsements help sell new condos?
1: You know, it it, it is all about again so many other factors um, with location, with pricing, with timing. I've seen some that you know will have a celebrity endorsement, and, and it has really nothing. No impact, but I've also worked on a few where the person's been a, a great in the design side of things, and and really enhanced the uh, the lifestyle and amenity space, and and did did offer value to it. So interesting, yeah. Yeah, we, I
0: I I I interviewed with uh, sorry I'm going off my rapid fire. Interviewed with uh, I think it was Tracy Haynes, and she was doing a future article on yeah. on celebrity uh, celebrity endorsements. And I remember Lenny Kravitz with with Bisha, and uh, and uh, they Karl had
1: Lagerfeld, Carl Lagerfeld with, with Freed
0: and, and uh, Fe- Philip Stark with Freed, and uh, who else was uh, Fendi? Yeah, Robert De Niro came out to the uh, one of the Madison projects, yep. Yep. right? The uh, the no Boo right no boo, so yeah. um I, it's fun you know I, I i find it exciting and uh and yeah and, i'm and, just more mad that i was never invited to these events <laughs> you know simon Liu. i would have i would like to meet him simon you Liu.
1: Know? yeah and 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 pharrell williams was the other one reserve did and <laughs> uh, and he's he's a really talented guy like he's a very artistic uh design savvy guy and Interesting. He, he was studying you know the light reflection on the pool water too like he was he was right into it <laughs> yeah. so it was it was a great uh, great asset to the that's project That's
0: awesome that's awesome well i think that's uh, all we have for you today it was a great discussion and i always love catching up with you because we're kind of in the overlapping spaces that we involved in and obviously mm-hmm. we've on a few projects for, for dream together. Anything else you want to, on a plug before we, we, uh, we, um, you know, call it a wrap is if someone wants to, if a rookie developers out there that needs your help, where should they, where should they find you?
1: Well, I have uh, Linda Mitchell com is my website. And, uh, so if they contact me through, through that website, I could, um, surely meet with them and speak to them, see if they need any, any assistance.
0: Nice. Well, I appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was great.